Take your copy of God's Word this morning and open it with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 8, picking up where we left off last Sunday. Exodus, chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I think it was about 10 years ago, I was walking the streets of San Francisco, Cuba. Not San Francisco, California. San Francisco, Cuba. Gene Menheim was with me. We were with one of our missionaries walking the streets when all of a sudden we heard a strange sound coming from behind a certain house. There was a man in the backyard who was banging a pot as loudly and as long as possible, and we had no idea what was going on. The missionary explained to us that this particular person was banging on that pot in order to get the attention of the idol, the God, the saint to whom he was praying And he believed that if he did not make enough noise, his God would not hear him. He had to get his attention. I remember thinking to myself, man, I am so glad. I don't have to bang on a pot to get God's attention. In fact, we don't have to do a single thing to get God's attention because we always have his attention Sometimes, however, God does have to get our attention. He has to get our attention because we're not paying attention to Him. He has to get our attention because there is some danger in front of us and He wants to warn us. Sometimes He has to get our attention because there's something He wants to teach us. Sometimes because there is a course correction that He wants to make in our life. But you think about all of the different people whose attention God had to get in different ways throughout the Bible. Jonah was running from God, and God got his attention using a storm and a great fish. We know that God got Paul's attention with a blinding light. God got Peter's attention on one occasion by means of a very strange dream. We know that God got Belshazzar's attention. The book of Daniel with handwriting on a wall. We've already seen how God got Moses' attention one time using a burning bush. There are numerous ways in which God will do it. He doesn't always use the same things or act in the same ways, but God has numerous means at His disposal to get our attention whenever He wants to And I don't know about you, but I've experienced this in my life on a personal level. In our scripture this morning, we see that God is once again getting the attention of Pharaoh and Egypt and even Israel as well. We began to look at these ten plagues. These are ten supernatural acts, ten things that God did to strike Egypt And he does this not only to bring his people out of Egypt so that he can bring them into the promised land. God does this in order to teach them that he alone is God. We saw last week that when God is getting our attention, sometimes he uses people around us. 
when God wanted to get Pharaoh's attention. He used the preaching of Moses. He used the praying of Moses in part in order to do it. Sometimes when God's getting our attention, he is exposing idols around us, those things that we trust in instead of God. And when God is getting our attention, there's always some kind of response that is going to be required from us. Well, this morning we're going to look at the next two plagues. I initially thought we'd get a little bit further, but we're not. We're going to look at the next two plagues, and there are several more lessons that I want us to see about when God is getting your attention. And I want you to notice that when God is getting your attention, He speaks decisively. He speaks decisively. Look at chapter 8, verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now this is one of the few times in these plagues that the plague was not announced in advance. This plague was not announced and it was not explained in part because I believe this plague really did not require an explanation. The Bible says that Aaron struck out, held out his rod, struck the ground, and in one moment, the dust became lice. Now, this translation says lice. Other translations say gnats. I don't know about you, but I don't care for any of the above. But just as God used dust to create these bugs, uh, God, before that, had taken the dust to create the first man. And by the way, if you believe that God could do that in Genesis, you should have no problem believing that he could do it in Exodus as well. And I mentioned last week that all of these plagues had in mind exposing the Egyptian gods as false. Now, this plague discredited one particular god in the Egyptian pantheon whose name was Geb. The Egyptians believed that Geb was the god of the soil, the god of the dust. And to them, it was very important. If you wanted the ground to produce an abundant harvest, you'd better recognize Geb. You'd better worship Geb. You had better pray to Geb. And so I want you to notice what God does. God took Geb and turned it into lice. God took one of their gods and made it repulsive to them. And it says in verse 17 that man and beast were covered with lice. This is repeated again in verse 18. God covered them in these bugs in order to send them a message. This kind of reminds me of that time Several years ago, four or five years ago, I was preaching in Haiti, and I went to this very small village out in the middle of nowhere. They did not have uh, electricity, and so we had to bring a generator, and we had uh, just enough power for sound. 
and one light bulb, which they put right over my head so that I could read my Bible as I preached. Well, you know what happens when you are in the middle of nowhere and there is one and only one light? Every bug in town comes to pay you a visit. And so I had bugs all over my head. I had bugs trying to crawl on my face. I had bugs on my shirt, on my arms. It was like an episode of Fear Factor. And let me tell you, from personal experience, when your whole body is covered in bugs, it is very hard for you to think about anything else. That is exactly what God was doing here. This plague was not something that you were going to get used to. God put them in a situation in which all they could do every moment of the day was think about this God that Moses had introduced to them, Yahweh. All they could do was think about how Yahweh was superior to Geb. All they could do was think about Yahweh's command, let my people go. They could do that and nothing else. In fact, God spoke so clearly through this plague. Look at what happens in verse 18. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. The third plague came along. Pharaoh did exactly what he did after the first two plagues. He called all of his magicians out and said, I want you to do your thing. And so they brought out their staff and they said their magic words. And unlike the first two plagues, the Bible says that this time they were unable to do it. And this is the first of the plagues that they were not able to replicate. They could not do it because Satan's power has limits. Yes, he is powerful, but his power has limits. For example, he has the power to deceive. He has the power to divide. He has the power to accuse. He has the power to afflict. He has the power to blind eyes. He has all of these powers, but there is not a single power that the devil has that is not limited by God. They could pull off the first two plagues, but not this one. And God is using this plague to speak so clearly that these magicians go to Pharaoh and they say, this is the finger of God. By the way, did you know that Jesus actually quoted that statement after one of his miracles in Luke chapter 11? When Jesus uh, uh, healed a, a, a young demon-possessed man and everybody was debating how he did it and Jesus said that he did it, by the finger of God. I want you to think about that statement. Think about what these magicians were saying. If you have something that you have to do, but all you have to do is lift the finger to do it, you didn't exert much energy, did you? When they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, it's kind of like saying, 
Just wait until God decides to use his whole hand. It's kind of like saying, just wait until God decides to use his arm. God spoke so decisively that these pagan priests, these magicians, whose job it was to lead the Egyptians in worshiping the Egyptian pantheon, even they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Even they are openly admitting that Yahweh is more powerful than any god or idol they have served. Now, this is not necessarily saving faith. A person can believe that God exists, and a person can believe that God is powerful without repenting, without trusting in Him, but this is a step in the right direction. And this proves that God is revealing Himself in an undeniable way. He is speaking decisively when God wants to get your attention he will do so in a way that you know that he is the one doing it the problem is never God's ability to speak clearly the problem is always our willingness to heed what God says you know maybe some of you even now God's at work in your life he's trying to get your attention the thing is you know it even if you're not willing to admit it. Well, once again, the real issue is our willingness to respond when God speaks. But when God wants to get our attention, He speaks decisively. By the time this is over, even Pharaoh himself will know with absolute certainty that Yahweh is the Lord. Something else that we see when we look at this next plague when God is getting your attention, He invites us to place our hope in Him. He invites us to place our hope in Him. Now, look at verse 20. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Once again, God tells Moses to preach to Pharaoh, and once again, it is the same message as the time before, which was the same message as the time before. You will notice, I said last week, the message does not change. Moses just keeps preaching that same message to Pharaoh over and over again. Look at verse 21. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants on your people and into your houses the houses of the egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand three words that send chills down my spine i don't know about yours but i see those words swarms of flies one fly is enough to bug you a dozen is enough to really ruin your day. Now imagine swarms of flies everywhere. Well, once again, we don't know with absolute certainty what kind of fly is spoken of here, but I will point out that in Psalm 78, it refers to the fourth plague and says that these flies devoured them which would seem to mean that these were the kind of flies that bite. 
Now, there were at least two different Egyptian gods in the Egyptian pantheon which were being targeted by this plague. One of them was the god Kepri. Kepri was always depicted as a beetle. Take a look at this picture, literally carved into stone, this beetle representing Kepri. You see it in hieroglyphics. You see it in the pyramids. I have another picture here. This was actually an artifact that was discovered in King Tutankhamun's burial chamber. But I want you to notice you have this flying beetle and it's pushing someone, something forward. You notice that circle. That represents the sun because they believed that Kepri was the god who made the sun to rise and set every day. They believed that Kepri was the one who caused the seasons to come and go in their adequate times. They believed that Kepri was the god who brought about order to the universe. So what does God do? God uses these flies to bring about not order, but disorder. And once again, God takes their God, He puts it on trial, and it is found to be false. Now, there was another Egyptian god that was probably being targeted by this particular plague, and that was Beelzebub. Now, if you read in the New Testament, you see that the Jews in the first century, they believed that uh, Beelzebub was just another name for Satan. Now, in Egypt, when they referred to Beelzebub in the days of Moses, that was the name of their god, which literally meant Lord of the Flies. Just like the book, Lord of the Flies. And they called him that because they believed that this was the God who would hold off the swarms of flies. This was the God who held off natural disasters. They believed that Beelzebub was their guardian, the one who protected them. Well, notice what God does about this. God is going to show them where real protection lies. Verse 22 says, And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. God set a boundary around Goshen, which was the camp of his people, put up an invisible spiritual sign that said, No flies allowed. And you know what? Those flies did something that Pharaoh was not willing to do. They actually obeyed the command of the Lord. The Egyptians, they had flies buzzing in their ears all day long, but you couldn't find any flies in Goshen. Now, beginning with this fourth plague, God does something that he did not do with the first three. God 
keeps the Hebrews from experiencing it. Now, this means they did experience the first three plagues. Yes, the Hebrews were impacted when the Nile was turned to blood. The Hebrews were affected by all of the frogs and by the lice. But from this point forward, the plagues do not affect God's people. Now, a lot of people will ask the question, why did God allow His people to endure some of the plagues, but not these other plagues? And the Bible doesn't tell us completely why God did it this way, but let me remind you of something. God knows what he is doing. God knows exactly what he wants to accomplish and what it's going to take in order to do it. God knows what buttons to push in our lives. God knows what effect any given trial will have in our lives. He knows how much any given person can bear by God's grace. And God takes all of that into account, which, by the way, is why sometimes you'll see someone who has to go through one kind of trial that maybe nobody else has to experience. And you'll see somebody else going through a different trial that no one else has to experience. God takes all of that into account. He knows what he is doing. Now, in this case, God told Pharaoh the lesson that he was supposed to learn from this. He said in verse 23, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and your people. My people, the people of Yahweh, they are protected. Your people, Pharaoh's people, they are not protected. And we see this difference in how God deals with his people versus how God deals with those who are not his people. And by the way, that's still true today. God still does that the same way. God deals with those who are in Christ. He deals with his people according to mercy and grace. He deals with those who are not in Christ on the basis of their sin. Now, God does it this way. He didn't have to, but God does it this way in order to show them where real protection lies. God is saying to Pharaoh, and God is saying to the Egyptians that Kepri is not the one who gives you order. So stop trusting in him and put your hope in me. God is doing all this in order to tell them, Beelzebub is not the one who protects you. I'm the one who protects you, so stop trusting in him and put your hope in me. And we still have to deal with this same temptation in our lives. We still deal with this temptation to hope in that thing or that person other than God for our protection. And when we do, God is willing to allow our protection to fail. We put our trust in the economy, it'll crash. We put our trust in government, it'll fall. We put our trust in our defenses, they will fail. Listen, this world will never give you the security that you are longing for. So stop expecting this world to deliver on what it is never going to be able to do 
and put your trust in God. He is the one who can bring order to all of our chaos. He is the one who can protect us, and his protection never fails. Sometimes when God is getting our attention, he does so in order to invite us to put our hopes in him alone. But there's one more thing that I want you to see that we need to remember when God is getting your attention, when God's getting your attention, compromise is not an option. We need to remember, compromise is not an option. Look at verse 25. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. It's interesting, Pharaoh didn't even bother calling his magicians this time because he has now learned that they cannot help him. He now understands that only Yahweh can help him. So he calls to Moses, and notice what he said, go sacrifice in the land. In other words, you want to worship Yahweh? Fine. You want to sacrifice to your God? Okay, under one condition. Stay in Egypt. See a problem with that? I do. You see, this part of the command was not let my people sacrifice. It was let my people go. Now, Moses at this point, if you read on, he tries to talk some common sense into Pharaoh, and he says, well, we can't sacrifice here because the animals that we're going to sacrifice, the Egyptians consider sacred, and if we slaughter them and they see us, they're going to get mad, there might be a riot, that won't work. And so Pharaoh, in verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only... And there's your problem right there. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. This time, Pharaoh said, Okay, I will let you go, but not too far. I'll let you go, but you stay close enough so that my army can keep their eyes on you. And once again, there's a problem You see, God didn't send Moses to Israel so that he would partially deliver them. God sent Moses to Egypt because God intended to completely deliver them. Do you understand that God did not send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us in order to partially deliver us from sin, to partially deliver us from death and from hell? God sent his son to deliver us completely. I love what Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher, said about this. He said, Christ did not come to make sin less tolerable, to make hell less hot, to make our lusts less mighty, but to put all these things far away from his people. The deliverance must be complete or else there shall be no deliverance at all. That was true for Israel and Egypt, and it's true for us today. God is not in the business of partial 
deliverance. It is complete deliverance in Christ or none at all. Once again, the Bible says that Pharaoh hears this. Once again, he asked for prayer. Just like we saw last week, Moses prayed for the land. God answered his prayer. It was after Moses prayed that God caused the plague to end. And once again, just like last week, Pharaoh, this time the Bible says he hardened his heart. Other times it says God hardened his heart. This time it says he hardened his heart. He is responsible, in other words, for his actions. He hardened his heart, and he would not let them go. But I want you to think about what Pharaoh is doing. Pharaoh is trying to negotiate with God. You ever tried to do that? Did it work? No. Pharaoh is saying to God, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a little bit of what you want. You give me a little bit of what I want. And we'll meet in the middle. A lot of people have adopted this way of thinking. There are a lot of people who are willing to dip their toe in the water as long as they don't have to jump in completely a lot of people who would say sure i'm willing to offer god some sacrifices as long as i get to stay in egypt i'll offer god some of my life some of my time some of my allegiance as long as I can remain in my sin and say or do whatever I want. People are still trying to negotiate with God and it doesn't work. Listen to me carefully. God does not negotiate. God simply commands. His commands are good. His commands lead to our well-being. His commands lead to our blessings. But God does not negotiate. He's under no obligation to negotiate with us. He doesn't negotiate. He simply commands. And ladies and gentlemen, God has not given us the option of compromising with this world. He hasn't given us the option of compromising when it comes to morality. He hasn't given us the option of compromising when it comes to absolute truth. He hasn't given us the option of compromising when it comes to our conduct, how we live our lives. He hasn't given us the option of compromising when it comes to the gospel, and he has not given us the option of compromising when it comes to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. You remember what Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. You know, you see a man or woman carrying their cross, they've given up everything. Their rights, their agenda, their plans, and there is no compromise. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He did not compromise, not a single command from the Father. He did not compromise his mission. He did not 
compromise a single letter of God's Word. And when He faced the cross, He did not compromise. He drank every ounce of God's wrath for our sin, shed every drop of blood that He had until He could say, it is finished. And it is because Jesus did not compromise that the door to heaven is open for you and for me and for whosoever will confess Him and receive Him as Lord of their lives. Would you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, dear God, that even in these plagues, which are terrible, and as we read further, they get worse. But even in these plagues in which we see judgment, we also see mercy. We see You sparing Your people. We see the preaching in Pharaoh's ears. We see the opportunity that is given repeatedly to repent and be saved. And we thank You, Lord, that even in these plagues, You extend that offer of repentance and salvation to the Egyptians. And today, in the midst of a world that is broken, as we're going through our own version of a modern-day plague, even now, God, You extend that offer of forgiveness and salvation to whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So, Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room who's been negotiating with you, and I have to think that probably there are some here today in this crowd and those that are watching online, there are some here today who have been doing just that. Those who've been trying to negotiate, those who've been trying to meet you in the middle, those who have been trying to call the shots or set the terms, those who have been trying to compromise with this world, help them to see it doesn't work. That you are calling us to take up our cross, to follow Jesus. And it is costly, but oh, is it worth it. And so I pray for that man or woman or boy and girl who even today needs to take that step and call upon Jesus as Lord of their lives, as Lord of all. May you knock on the door of their heart. This would be truly their day of salvation. And God, would you help all of us to see those areas of partial obedience in our lives? Help us to see those areas of partial commitment so that we would repent of that and turn away from that afresh and anew and just follow you. We thank you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.